Good evening all. Uh, it is good to be together if I haven't met you before. Uh, my name is John Thorpe. I'm the Senior Minister. And please keep your Bible open as we look at this passage together uh, from the book of Philippians. Let me pray. Uh, dear Lord, we do uh, thank you that we can gather together. We thank you that you speak through your word. And so, Lord, I pray now that you will be with us through your spirit, that I will speak faithfully and that you will convict each of us of the things that we need to hear. Amen. It's hard to stay motivated uh, when you've already achieved uh, the desired outcome that you are hoping for. So if you're trying to sell your house, then in the lead up to selling your house, you are completely obsessive about cleaning the thing. The lawn has to be perfect, the windows have to be perfect, everything has to be perfect. And then you sort of light a few casual candles around the house, bake some bread, and sort of pretend that this is what it's like every day in your household. Uh, But once you've sold the house, well then everything's completely different. Okay, all of a sudden all that that clothing that was so carefully put away isn't put away quite so carefully. You're not so fussed about what happens to the lawn or what that thing is growing there because the deal's done. Okay, it's, it's locked, it's loaded, the future is guaranteed. Uh, it's sort of the same uh, with your footy team. You know, you're watching the footy, uh, your team is 26 points ahead, 10 minutes to go, and the outcome is secure. And you sort of watch that in the way the play works, isn't it? You know, that intensity just drops off a bit. You know, they've still got to play, but they know what the outcome is going to be. In the passage uh, that we are looking at tonight... Uh, Paul uh, is looking to the future and he's confident about the future. His future is completely secure. Uh, But instead of sort of sitting back, he actually sees that secure future as a motivation for how he then lives in the present. So last week uh, we were looking at what Paul had to say about what it means to know Christ uh, and what it means to have a righteousness or a rightness before God. And some people were saying you need Christ, but you also need the Old Testament law. And in particular, you need male circumcision. Uh, I did have a number of medical people offer uh, visual aids after I failed you know, to, to produce last week. I have declined. Uh, But the point was uh, that Paul recognises that it is Christ alone and what happens at the cross that saves us. His death has paid the price for our sin. And so we are saved by grace and not by works. And that's a huge relief, isn't it? That there is nothing we can do to be good enough for God. It is simply what God has done for us. And Paul is looking forward to being with Christ and sharing in his resurrection. Uh, We look forward to lots of things, don't we? In a week's time or a couple of weeks' time, I'm looking forward to going up to Byron Bay and going for a surf. But for Paul, uh, you know, looking forward is more than just a fond longing. You know, if you can imagine the excitement of a crowd you know, lining up for a concert. So I love this picture. This is sort of height of Beatles mania about 1960. Uh, I love the cop in the middle who's uh, just having a bit of a crisis with his helmet. Uh, But, you know, you get this sense of, you know, there's the screaming, uh, there's the, you know, this sort of unhinged sense of emotion. 
uh, in the moment. Uh, but you get a sense of, of the anticipation, don't you? Uh, as they you know, look forward to this concert. Uh, for others, it might be that feeling of, of a sense of anticipation uh, in that first trip overseas. You know, as you head through customs and that sort of bated breath moment of you know, looking forward to everything that's about to come and all the places you're about to see. Uh, for others, it might be on the other side of customs when you're waiting for someone to come home, that sense of anticipation as that person you love comes through those gates. But if you have any sense of empathy with those emotions, then you start to feel what Paul feels as he waits with anticipation for that future glory with Christ. So in the words of Paul from earlier in this letter, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And it comes up again and again in this letter that Paul is looking forward to his future with Christ. But that also has a big impact on the present. So verse 14, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven. Verse 21, he will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. That's what he has attained through Christ Jesus. And it's past tense. So the ticket's been paid for, his salvation is secure, his future is guaranteed. And so now he just sits back on the beach and waits for his number to be called in. Except that's not really what it says, is it? That's not really what God wants for his people. When Christ takes hold of us, it's not enough to simply let go and let God, as if our sole purpose in this life is to secure grace, and then that's it. That grace compels us to press on. In the words of verse 15, straining towards the goal. Verse 16, living up to what we have already attained. God's word really does confound our whole approach to life. You know, we expect to put effort in with a hope of winning a prize. That's how most of life works. But God chooses to give us that prize by grace. But then he calls us to then put in effort. So what are we called to do? To press on. So as we look at verse 14, it sounds like he's saying, you've you've been saved, now press on, and you've got to do a bit more to still be saved. Uh, That's not quite what he means. It'd be better to translate it as simply, I press on towards the goal for the prize. So the prize is one. Everything that we need to have our future certain hope in heaven is done through what Christ has done for us. All we need to do right now is live in anticipation of what we have already got. But we live with purpose and we live putting in effort. So it's not saved by grace, live by works. But saved people live in service of our Lord and Saviour. And when God's love takes hold of us, then it compels us. 
It gives us a desire to see him glorified. And so we press on and we make the most of every moment from now until we stand with God in glory. Yeah, it's a bit like getting married. Uh, yesterday I had the pleasure of uh, watching Joe Stacy get married. Uh, but you don't just get to the wedding day, say your vows, and then stop putting effort into your relationship. You know, we've made it, we've got over the line, job done, now I can just kick back. That's completely the opposite, isn't it? I, I love this person, I've just committed to this person, and so now we live out that commitment. And it's the same with us and God. And if you're not clear about who you are or where you are going, then it's impossible to have any sense of how we should get there. And verse 15 is quite a compassionate verse because it recognises that even as Christians who are saved, we don't always have clarity. All of us then, this is what he says, verse 15, all of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. So the things that he's talking about here are the things like that we are saved by grace, not by the law. It's the reality of suffering as a Christian and the anticipation of being with Christ. So when Paul talks about the provocateurs of false teaching then he talks about it without holding back, doesn't he? So last week we read these words, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. But here he speaks a little more pastorally. And I think part of that comes from his relationship with the Christians in Philippi. You know, he knows them. They know him. He knows their earnest faith and their commitment to Christ. And so he says, for those who think differently on some issues, I'm confident that God will teach you, that you will come to a point of understanding. You know, when it comes to angry words, when it comes to firm words, we reserve our firmest words for those who would lead other people astray. Uh, Because they're the people who are most dangerous. They don't just impact one person, they impact a whole stack of people. I think then perhaps we keep firm words uh, for those people who are heading astray themselves because we care about where they're going, we want to warn them. But for those who are trying to work it out, I think we tend to speak more gently, more compassionately, more patiently. And that's what's happening in these words here. You know, Paul is confident that these Philippian Christians will work it out. So what does it look like to press on in the present? Or in the words of verse 16, how do we live up to what we have already attained? Uh, If you're anything like me, uh, I'm a bit of an activist. So I just simply want to know, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to build and where do you want me to build it? Uh, That's kind of how my brain works. But If that's where we start, then we're actually starting in the wrong spot. So recognising that God is behind all of it, our first response to the gospel has got to be repent and believe, to recognise Jesus as Lord and Saviour. And then God starts to work on our character and our attitudes. 
So God doesn't just simply want us to be good, moral people. He wants our goodness to be motivated by our love for him and our love for others. And then we get to action. How do we love other people? How do we speak the good news? How do we grow together? How do we support others? And if we want to know what that looks like in real life, then Paul says, look at me and look at other Christians. So verse 17, join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. You know, it all sounds a bit arrogant, doesn't it? No one really wants to say, look at me, look at me. But certainly, that's what we should expect from our leaders. That's what we should expect from parents, isn't it? Our kids should be able to look up to us and see us as a model of what it is to be an adult, of what it is to be a man or a woman or a husband or a wife. Yeah, our church leaders uh, should be examples of godliness. I should be an example of godliness. And when I get it wrong, I should be an example of repentance. You know, we can't go through life saying, do as I say, but not as I do. As Christians, that cannot be our mantra. Our youth should be able to look up to their leaders. Those who have come to faith more recently should be able to look up to those who are more mature in the faith, more mature in their understanding, more mature in their obedience. So if you're a Christian here tonight, there is no exception. We are all in this together. We've all been called to be examples. It's a weighty responsibility, isn't it? Uh, But we don't do it with a sense of pride. We do it with a sense of humility. We do it recognising our own fallibility. And we're thankful for the power of the Holy Spirit, who slowly but surely is moulding us to be more like Christ. So if the right example is looking at mature Christians, then the wrong example is to look at the world around us. Verse 18. For as I have told, as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. For Christians, the reality of what Christ has done in the past, in his death and resurrection, and the hope that we have in the future, defines how we now live in the present. Uh, But for the world around us, uh, there is no future if there is no God. And so life is simply defined in the present. And they don't see themselves as enemies of the cross. For many people, they say, I don't even think about the cross at all. And that's really the point. They don't acknowledge God as God, and they don't acknowledge the mercy of God or the offer of grace. And with that choice comes an inevitable outcome. Their destiny is destruction. And I hope our first reaction as we hear those words is one of compassion. Uh, Some of these people genuinely hate Christians, uh, actively hate Christians. Uh, But we wouldn't wish that destiny on even our worst enemy. 
And we want to make sure we do everything in our power to stop that from happening. But we also know, and we also need to be aware, not to get sucked in. If this is the world, what the world is like, we are called to be different. Their God is in their stomach and their glory is in their shame. I don't think Paul is singling out foodies uh, for special attention. Uh, it's a more a comment on excess and indulgence and our underlying values of life. And so if you go on uh, social media, uh, which I do heaps, not... Uh, then you get a pretty good picture, though, of what we value as a society. So, we value cats, uh, particularly cats doing funny things. Uh, But we also uh, value fitness and beauty. You know, we say that uh, beauty is more than just skin deep, uh, but then we look at someone like Kim Kardashian, who has 132 million followers which is an inconceivable number of people. That's the population of this country, this entire country, man, woman, child, throwing the dogs, uh, times six. And that's roughly where you end up. Uh, So clearly, as a society, this is something that we value. Uh, There's nothing intrinsically wrong with wealth, but we do glorify greed and selfishness. We glorify gossip, uh, or at very least rebrand it as news. We glorify our lack of self-control and celebrate promiscuity and even pornography. But I think to make things that little bit more complicated, we now wrap up these things in the language of virtue. These things are good and right and inclusive. And anyone who would suggest that my choices are somehow bad choices or wrong choices... Well, they get vilified for shaming, which has become a whole new moral category of its own. I think the problem with temptation and sin is it's often presented to us more as a slippery dip and less of a cliff. Uh, When you stand on the edge of a cliff, uh, you can see the outcome so clearly that you're really not even tempted to jump. You know it's going to end badly. Uh, But with something like a slippery dip, well, that just looks fun and harmless, doesn't it? Yeah, you think, well, I'll just sort of take it easy and go slow. Now, I can always sort of stop if, you know, it gets gets a bit much. But of course, when it comes to sin, we so often don't stop, do we? We just keep on going. And our behaviour and the way we treat other people causes ourselves all sorts of grief and pain. Uh, But actually, that's not the worst of it. Uh, The worst of it is, the more uh, we embrace our sin, the less connected we feel with our Lord. And at some point, the reality of our salvation will become clear. So we will either repent of our sin and change, uh, or we will stop flirting with faith and walk away. So we need to be clear about who we are. Verse 19, their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And that completely redefines how we live in the present. And so Paul then returns to our future hope, verse 20. And we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control 
will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. In his life, Jesus demonstrates his power over nature and the wind and the waves. In his death, he demonstrates his power over sin. He paid the price that we could not pay for ourselves. And in his resurrection, he demonstrates his power over death itself. So we can be confident of the future because Jesus is already going before us. And if he's already done all of that, then we can also be confident that he will take away the scars of our sin, that he will transform our lowly bodies so that we will be like his glorious body. That's good news for everyone, isn't it? But I think for those who are tired of being in constant pain, tired of feeling anxious and afraid, tired of feeling depressed or lonely, if that's you, then these are words that are more than just good news. These are true hope words. That despite all of the burdens of the present life, And no promise that those burdens will simply be taken away in the present. There is a promise that in the future, in Christ, we will be made perfect. So our salvation is secure now. Our purpose is clear now. How we are to live is clear now. But this life will never be heaven on earth. That's yet to come. And so we press on in the present and we pray, come Lord Jesus, come. Amen.